0: We welcome you to Doxodeo Hatfield, a multi-ethnic family on mission, passionate about Jesus, passionate about community, and passionate about serving the city of Chihuahua. Well, good morning and uh, welcome to Dr. Dale Hetfield. I want to ask you to open up a Bible with me to the book of John chapter 2. So we are still in the good news according to John and you can open up to John 2 verse 13. And we've been saying that often when people read the book of John, the gospel according to John, it almost seems to them that they are meeting Jesus afresh for the first time. And that's because the gospel of John has such a unique capacity to not only introduce people to Jesus for the first time, to see them just in awe of who he is, but to reintroduce Christians to Jesus. And we want to say that that is the Christian life, to know Jesus and to make him known. And therefore, the early cry of the early church in terms of evangelism, going out and sharing the message was simply this, come and see. Come and see this Jesus for yourself and become someone who introduces others to Jesus. And so I want to ask you as we are preaching through the book of John, just come and be introduced to him again. Be awed again. Stand in reverence and in just flabbergasted faith again. Come and see. So let's take another step in our series. John chapter 2 verse 13. The Jewish Passover was near and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found people selling oxen, sheep and doves and he also found money changers sitting there. And after making a whip out of cords, he drove out everyone of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and he overturned the tables. He told those who were sitting doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. And therefore the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it up in three days. That's offensive. Who would say things like that? So Jesus says some pretty crazy things that offends people, that stirs people. And here is one of those things. He says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body and everyone is on the you know, edge of their seat. Not really, is it? You're like, okay, oh, that's all right. That's like a two out of 10 for Jesus. That hating your parents and that's pretty rough. But this stuff, you know, the temple doesn't really make sense. But the reason is because we don't have the context of this moment. There's a bit of translation needs to happen because we don't understand in our modern context what the temple meant to these people. And if you understand that, like the ancient Eastern people understood what the temple meant, you would realize this is a cataclysmic statement by Jesus. This is offensive to the max. So we need to ask some questions to get into this and to see how that statement makes all the difference in your life. So we're going to ask some questions today. Why, what, and how? First up, why is the temple so important? So over the centuries, the Passover festival, this was this moment where Jewish people would come together um, and they would celebrate. They would re-engage this moment in their history where God had taken them out of Egypt out of slavery, saved them, he passed over them on this fateful evening. And so it had become, over the centuries, something of a pilgrimage. Like a, almost like Muslims today would go to Mecca as a pilgrimage. It happened that they would go to the holy city, Jerusalem, by the thousands. And so what ended up happening, obviously, is that this temple area, as they got there, it was divided into three Areas You can see it still. And the middle area, this was where the actual temple structure was itself. This was the court of the the holy ones. And then secondly, around that, you had the court of the Jewish people. And then thirdly, in the outermost room, you had the court of the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And it's in that court that all the hullabaloo was happening with Jesus. Because you can imagine now, if you are coming from, because I mean, in this Passover season, in this festival time, tens of thousands of Jewish and non-Jewish people from every country in the then known world would come to this place. And you can't just, if you're coming from Spain, like carry a donkey or a, you know, an oxen or something on your shoulder to come and sacrifice in the temple. You would have to come there and you would have to actually receive something. You would have to pay for some kind of sacrifice to bring before God. And the money that you would have to do that with, you would have to come and exchange your foreign currencies in the temple. So what ended up happening is this outer court that was actually dedicated to the non-Jewish people, where they would come and experience who is the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, it had become like this thrift shop, this marketplace. You can imagine just thousands of people, it's money, it's bartering, it's animals being slaughtered, it's chaos. It's like Menland Mall on a Friday, it's chaos. You don't want to be there. You have to pay for the park. You know where your car is. You're always tired in that place. This was something like that. And the, and the worst part is it was done in this bartering, this trading, this shouting. This, all of this was happening in the court of the Gentiles because that was the closest by Jewish law that they could come to the space. And you think, well, that's not that bad. But think about this. This, the temple, what did it stand for? What was the representation of the temple for the Jewish people? We think, you know, temple is like some holy space where you go to to meet God, maybe, like a Buddhist temple or something like that. But for them, the temple was not just about religion. It was the center of all of Jewish life. Everything about the Jewish identity was found in the temple. It was the center of government, of judicial law, of religious life, of taxation. The the temple was the thing that set the moral and the religious temperature of the people. They had no greater pride than the temple. And now imagine, now here comes non-Jewish people, Gentiles, and they have an earnest desire to know the God of the Israelites. And they travel thousands of kilometers, some of them, to come here to meet this God, to know this God, to hear the good news of this God. And what are they met with? With chaos. Instead of a place that that was prophesied, this will be a place of prayer for the nations. This will be the place of good news for the nations. It had become this place of absolute self-worship. It's about money, it's about status, it's about who we are. Instead of the temple representing a a consumption with God, God, we are obsessed with you. It had become a place of self-consumption. We are obsessed and focused and worshiping ourselves. See, Israel was meant to embody God, the God of Israel to the nations, but they had lost their way. They had lost their calling. They had forsaken who they are. And so Jesus comes as this prophetic voice to say, we need to get back to God. The temple represents the beating heart of the nation. So second question then, what does Jesus find in your temple? What needs to be driven out of your temple? See, John 2.14 says, in the temple he found People selling oxen and sheep and all these things. And then what does he say? He says, get the stuff out of you. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. This place used to represent something and you've turned it into something else. And when I come to find you here, what do I find? Friends, the temple, I want to say, we've actually, last week and this week, last week we spoke about sex and intimacy. And now everyone's sorry that they missed that. And this week we're speaking about... (laughs) Money and power and status, career, because why? These two pictures of Jesus, he comes to confront all those Jewish religious practices and show himself in the book of John as the fulfillment of those things. So last week, as we spoke about the Samaritan one, what did we say? He says he comes to this well, And in the end, he tries to show her that you have gone to the place of sex and intimacy, five husbands and a new fling now on Tinder that you found. And you are trying to fulfill this place, this deep well of emptiness in your life. You are going to the well of sex and intimacy to fulfill something that you will never find there. He's asking her, what are the wells of your life? Because the wells of our lives, and we had great conversations in our community groups last Wednesday. The wells of our lives are the places we go to to find fulfillment and joy. And we said that's often like with the woman at the well, sex and intimacy. But this week, Jesus is saying, not what is the well of your life, but what is going on in the temple of your life? What is going on in the temple of your life? Because the temple of our lives are the places we go to to find security and significance and status, identity. And let's be honest, for most people in 2022, that has something to do with my vocation, my career, and my bank balance. Last week was was beds, this week it's business. Bank balances. Friends, I want to say Jesus often lovingly leads us to see how insufficient our wells are, to truly satisfy us. But sometimes He lovingly comes to confront your temple, (laughs) And he, he makes a little whip to say, let's speak about what's actually going on in there. And so if Jesus comes to your well, like last week, what does he find there? And here's the beautiful news that we heard is he offers so much more than just trying to reform the wells of your life. Oh, Jesus, please just fix my marriage. Oh, Jesus, please get me off of porn because porn is the way that I regulate my emotions. If you can just, if you can just come and, and reform my wells, he says, no, I want to do much more than that. I want to become the well in your life. I want to become the true sense of of capital S satisfaction, because guess what? Then your marriage will find its rightful place. Then sexuality will find a beautiful place around the true well that is God. And so in the same way, today he says, if I were to come to your temple, that is your heart, that is your life, what will I find there? Because I want to do so much more than just reform your temple. Oh God, please sort out just my financial debt, please. Please. Oh, God, just, just help me deal with the stress of my work. He says, no, I want to do more than that. I want to become the temple of your life. I want to come and stand at the very center of your temple because then, guess what? Then your job, then your money, then status, then career, then vocation, those things will start making sense when they are standing around the throne of God. But when they occupy the center of the temple, man, it's a mess, just get the stuff out of here. Why is this so important? The nation of Israel, they once found their identity and significance in God, who God is, the narrative of God, the, the character of God, God's dealings with us, God's heart for us, His calling on our lives and what had happened. They had now come to a place where they say, we will be a people who create meaning and status for ourselves. We are no longer a people of God. We are a people of religion. We are a people of status. We are a people of pride. We are a people that shun other nations. We are a people that stand in worship of ourselves. And so the temple and the way that the temple was run, it represented the beating heart of Israel. And the question is, for them it was this, what is the most significant thing to us? What is the most significant thing? The object of greater significance was at the center of their running of the temple. And God comes to ask you today, what is the object of greater significance in your heart? You know, I've seen this in my own life. So I'll just speak on on our behalf. And I've seen it in so many young adults and students and especially the young working crowd in the church. Speaking to Christians now just for a second here. I've seen so many young adults who are passionate about Jesus as students. And they get into the workforce and they start making their own way and they don't explode their faith suddenly. It's all drugs and sex and, you know, just I'm a, I'm a full-blown hardcore atheist or something like that. They don't explode their faith. They just move their faith one centimeter at a time to a place of irrelevance. And what has taken its place? Is it hardcore or something? No, it's just my work and money and vocation has become my God are these bad things? No, these are great things. Your vocation is a great thing. Money is a great thing. Knowing that God has called you for something good thing, great thing, but when that becomes the thing, God becomes just one of the things. And somewhere between 25 and 35, are you still a Christian? Yes. You know, Christmas, man, that's, that's, my, that's my dig. Love going to church every now and then. Love to pray to God when I'm really in trouble. But he's not the thing. He's just one of the things. He's not been supplanted by Satan. He's been just supplanted by my career. What is most significant? And I want to ask us, man, I, I was confronted with this even last week. The kind of community that we have, Hatfield, in our community groups, in our friendships, do we have the kind of community that can do what Jesus does here? Or will you watch me or I watch you? Will I see your temple shifting to the place where Jesus is just one of the things? And now money is the driving force of your life, and I will do nothing. I will stand back and say, Ugh, that's awkward. I don't want to engage in that kind of conversation. You know, at church, we say things like, how's it going, and with your day, and the weather. But how about sex and money in your life? Oof, you know, that's, a, that's a bit close to home. Because Jesus says, I watch the temple shifting from its original purpose, and I start opening a can of whoop on the people, right? Is that the kind of community that we have? Or are you gonna watch me forsake my temple that is my life for good things but not God things and you just stand by idly? Or will you make a cord of love and you come into my life and say, This has to go, Joe? This has to go because I love you too much. Friends, we said community is grace and truth, John one. Grace means I will stick it out with you no matter what, but truth means I'm gonna be honest with you no matter what. Are we that kind of community? Or will you come and overturn some of the tables in my life when a good thing like status becomes the thing in my life? There was a song long ago by Switchfoot, one of my favorite bands, that used to say this, we were meant to live for so much more, but we lost ourselves. This is what Jesus is doing. He's saying you were meant to live for so much more, but you lost yourself. And he comes to lovingly confront us once again. And friends, let's be honest, the place that we lose ourselves in the modern time more than anything else is this place of money and fame and success and status and career, vocation. This is, this is the currency of Gauteng, friends, if you haven't figured it out yet. You are nothing but what you do. What's the first question you ask around the sports field? What do you do for a living? That tells me everything I need to know about you. So I love it. That's uh, Lauren Greenfield. She's a documentarian. She did this 10-year study, and she called it the following. Generation wealth, how the modern world, it's never been this way before, fell in love with money. And one of her main conclusions was this. As a secular woman, she says, no matter how much people had, every culture, generation that they could study this in, they always wanted, not needed, they wanted more. It's a driving force. Tim Cassidy, he's a psychologist. He writes a book called The High Price of Materialism. The High Price. And he says this. Many writers have shown that once we have sufficient food, shelter, and clothing, further material gains do little to improve our well-being. Is it nice? Oh, yes, friends. I'm, I don't have a poverty theology. But he says more than that, it does so little to your actual well-being. And he says this. But more importantly, people whose values center on the accumulation of wealth or material possessions. Not you have wealth or material possessions, but your value center in the middle of my temple is that is who I am. He says they are at greater risk of unhappiness, anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, regardless of age and culture. When I worship these things, they eat me alive. can I tell you a part of my own story was that I, at the age of 18, when I got saved, I absolutely experienced God calling me into ministry. I know that I know it was too audible for an audible voice. (laughs) I know God spoke to me, but my parents were very successful in business. And I'll just be honest. I'll say it maybe on your behalf at times. I just wanted to live a simply very comfortable life. I just wanted to have a lot of money. I just wanted to live in a certain neighborhood, drive a certain car. I wanted my friends at our reunion in 10 years from now to think a certain way about me. I wanted that kind of life. And for more than two years almost, I absolutely rejected the voice of the Lord calling me to a certain place. And I would still do what I wanted. And it was the loving voice of God saying, you don't have an issue with money. You have an issue with who you are worshiping. God called me, friends. What are the decisions that you're making at the moment? What's bringing anxiety into your life at the moment? What's your mental health built around at the moment? What is the center of your temple? Because listen to this, verse 23, read with me here. It says, while he was in Jerusalem during the passover of a festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. We didn't read this at the end, but I love how the New Living Translation puts verse 24, but Jesus didn't trust them. Because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature, for he knew what was in each person's heart. <laughs> Friends, this is one of the scariest and most freeing statements in all of the book of John. Jesus knows what's going on in your heart. You can lie to me, you can lie to these people, you can lie to yourself, but he knows and that would sound very confrontational if this were anyone else, but God stepped into human nature in Jesus. Because not only does he know what's at the center of your temple, he is the answer to what is at the center of your temple. He comes to not accuse and hurt and, you know, just, just overturn the tables for no reason. It's because he has a greater plan for your life, right? He says, I know that if I leave you in the slums of just playing with the mud pies of money and sex and status, you will get to your deathbed absolutely broken that you wasted your life. Give me one generation of people that said, man, the bottle and the business and the bed truly satisfied me. It's not been done. And yet here we go once again, tomorrow morning, the rat race continues. We are going to find it. Jesus says, I know what is in the heart of mankind. I have seen into the temple of every heart here and you can come to me. So what is he saying? He's saying we all worship something, friends. Maybe you're irreligious to some extent, and you say, no, man, that's gobbledygook. I don't worship anything. That's just nonsense. That's Bronze Age fairy tales. But I think Jesus is saying, no, we all worship something. Something gets you out of bed in the morning. Something controls the inner voice of your life at the moment. Something pushes you to strive for what you are doing at the moment. Everyone is driven by something, and everyone has something at the center of their temple. So we would call this in biblical language an idol. At the the center of every temple, there would be an idol of highest value, of highest significance. What is an idol? It's anything that is not, not important, but it's anything that takes up utmost importance even above God. This thing is the center of identity and satisfaction and significance in my life. And out, you know, idols—they can be outward-facing, like money, sex, and drugs, and all of that. But it's the inner idols that are much more deceptive. Those idols that that really control the narrative of your life, that push you to do things that you never would do. Those idols, like respect and power and status and control and greed and comfort, they drive us. He says we're all worshiping something. And these things are good, friends. Hear me again. Most of the idols of the world are such good things, but twisted to try and become God's things. How good is a marriage, but how, how evil does a marriage and destructive become when it becomes the source of my identity? So I love this. David Foster Wallace, he was an atheist, brilliant writer. In the end, he committed suicide very tragically, but he writes this. He was a man who understood, like Jesus, something of the temple of his own heart. And as he was speaking to a bunch of 18-year-olds at the day of their graduation, he said the following. Read with me. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and the things, and things, then you will never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual appeal, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths. When you worship power, you will always feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power in order to keep the fear at bay. And when you worship your intellect or being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, afraid, fraud, always on the verge of being found out. We are all worshiping. Jesus, I know what is in the heart of man. What is at the center of your temple, friends? What's that idol that truly drives you? Friends, I can stand here in church on a Sunday morning with my hands raised. And yet nothing has moved in the temple of my heart. So how do I know? How do I know what are some of these idols in my life? How do I recognize them? Let me ask you some questions. Think about this. If you want to close your eyes and just allow the Spirit to speak. Things become idols in our lives when they control us. So what makes you most depressed? What makes you most paralyzed by fear when you think about losing that? What are you most afraid of? Would your life be ruined if you lost that job, if that person walked away from you, if that marriage came to an end? Another way to tell about your idols is to look at where you spend most genuinely your resources. What do you spend most of your time and money on? Where does your mind just wander to when you have free time? What do you habitually think about that gives you a true sense of comfort and confidence and strength? What are the idols in our temples? Are you still with me, friends? Not confrontational today at all. Easy, non-speaking like about love, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, we'll get to that somewhere. So last question. Okay. So how do we drive out the idols in our temple? Jesus answered. Read with me in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days, verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. You see, his audience in that moment, they completely misunderstand what he's saying. They think he's speaking about the actual temple. And I think about this, friends. This temple, 20 years before Jesus' birth, Herod the Great said, we are going to, to launch this massive rebuilding project around the temple. And he had, just to show his commitment to it, they had trained just for the cutting of the stone, a thousand priests, And at one stage, more than 18,000 people were working day and night, seven days a week to build this thing. Some of the stones weighed more than 70 tons. You can still go and see the remnants of that foundation even today. And so they had been building this. This temple would only be finished in AD 64. That's 30 years after the death of Jesus and so he comes and he says, like they saying, listen, we have been building this thing for 46 years. And you say to me that you are going to raise it to the ground and then it'll be raised to life again in three days. And they laugh at him. Who are you? Who can, how can you say that? But of course, that's not what he was saying. He was saying something more profound. He was saying, yes, this temple represents everything that you are as a nation. What is the beating heart of who you are? I come to show you, I am the one to come and redefine that. I am the one to step into your temple and not bring judgment, but bring absolute reform. I'm here to clear out, to throw the tables away, and to to claim the space for God. He says, I'm the true Israelite. The plan was always this, Genesis 12, that you would be a light to the nations. God would come and show his goodness and glory to all the earth through the Israelites. Jesus says, I'm the true Israelite. Come to show that to you today so he was saying, this is going to happen in me. And so he says, I will become the temple so you can trust in me. You don't have to trust in Joe or a church or a brand. You don't have to touch, church in a, a trust in a rhythm or some kind, of, um, some kind of commitment that you make. He says, you can come and trust in me. Why? Because I don't want to simply make you a better person. Make you someone who sways less, curses less, sleeps around less, smokes less. He says, I want you to come alive. I want you to go from death to life. I have greater plans than simply moving the deck chairs of your life around. I want the ship to go in another direction. That's what I want. Why? Because in the end, he says, the time of the temple has come to an end. I am the final temple. I come to do the final work of God so that what? So that Paul in all of the book of Corinthians can say things like this. For you are the temple of the living God. Verse 16, don't you know that you are God's temple, that the spirit of God lives in you? For God's temple is holy and that is what you are. I come to make thousands of mobile temples in my own life. My life, death, and resurrection will not simply come and restore a building. It will come and raise up millions of temples in the city. And when the Gentiles, when the non-Christians come and they see, when the friends, neighbors, and colleagues observe what is going on in the outer court of your life, they don't just see people who have a Sunday rhythm and then just an atheist, practically atheist life the rest of the week. They see People with Jesus at the center. Not fake people, not moral people, but people who humbly say, without this man, I am nothing. I am part of this church, not because I have my stuff together. It's because I don't have it together. It's because I need him to come in here. I need him to come to the very center of this temple and chase everything else away that is not of him. Man, I don't want to have money at the center and God being used to worship that. I want God at the center of my life and money used to worship Him. I don't want sex at the middle of my life and God is my. He is my, my genie, my, my bottle, my my plaything. He's you know he's my slot machine to get what I actually want. I want Him in the middle and everything else is serving His purposes, His kingdom. He's the one. That's what He wants, friends. So at the end of the day, how do you replace those idols? Friends, you cannot do this by simply saying, I am going to to force myself to be more of this and less of that. Now, he says, you need to have a greater love come and displace the lesser loves. You need to have a greater God come and displace the lesser gods of your life. You say, no, but I want to be a full-blown, passionate Christian and all of this other stuff. (laughs) He says, it doesn't work that way. He says, but you will come to the place where every good thing that I give you becomes such a blessing to you and to those around you when I'm at the center. When religion is not one of the irons in your fire, but when faith is the fire and everything else just goes into it. When you don't just pull up a chair in the boardroom of your life for Jesus. Oh, you also get a vote, Jesus. Or between every, you know, sex has a vote, money has a vote, my vocation has a vote, my parents has a vote, trying to please my friends has a vote, all of it's got a vote. Jesus, you get a vote. Oh, he says, you have to to allow him to come and then chase all of them away and say, now I'm the CEO, I'm the board of this life. And you see sexuality come alive. You see money suddenly coming alive. You see career coming alive when it's in service of Jesus. The temple finds its true meaning once again. You were meant for so much more. Jesus says, I come to reclaim what you have lost. I will teach you to be human again. Because that's who you are. You are the temple of God. So just in closing, maybe a a question, hypothetical, to help you think about this. If you could go back in time, maybe two years, five years, 20 years, if you're not a Gen Y person, And I gave you this assignment. You have two minutes to speak to your younger self. Just two minutes. And the question is this. If you do this, younger self, little Joe, if you do this one thing, you will have a happy life. What would you tell yourself? Do you have a two-minute conversation with your younger self? If you do this, you will have a happy life. What would you say? I know what I would say to my younger self. I would say, little Joe, make sure you make as much money as possible, my friend. Make sure you do that. Trust me on this. Do whatever you can to out-earn everyone around you. Live in the biggest house you can. Drive the most expensive car you can. Wear the most luxurious clothes you can. And even if you have to sell your soul, trade your health, destroy your family and your marriage, bend every self-made rule you ever made, just get rich. Trust me, you'll be happy. And yet we know that this doesn't work. No, Jesus says, I come to reclaim who you are. Would you trust me with your career? Would you trust me with sexuality, status, money? In my hands, these will become beautiful things. At the center of your temple, these things will eat you alive. I love Michael Whitmer. He says, how can you tell if you're winning at the game of life? What's the standard scoreboard for our time? It's very simple. Success, stuff, status. Success, what have you done? Stuff, what do you have? Status, status. What do other people think about you? But Jesus comes and he says, stop turning my father's house <laughs> into a marketplace. He says, I'm reminded as he does this, the disciples said, man, I remember that this man, there was a prophecy in, in the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures of a man who had come who has such a zeal for his father's house. Jesus says, I have such zeal for your calling. I will not allow the, the couple of decades that you have, the one life that you have. Friends, just yesterday, one of my good, we've got five close friends. First of our five friends, Les, he lost his dad just this week. And he told us just over coffee yesterday I had to go and do the funeral for them. And he said this, man, when my dad, he was there when he died. He said when his dad literally, he, he just had his last breath and his dad, he was dead right there in front of him. And he said, three seconds after that, I so, I so wanted to say one more thing to him. I was so angry. I said like, dad, I still wanted to speak to you one, and it was gone. Friends, your life is so short. It's so short. Jesus says, I have zeal for this house. Will you trust me with everything that you are? Come and see. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray this morning, especially for young people sitting here, God, who are making big decisions at the moment as to where they're going. God, I pray specifically for people this morning whose mental health has been through the woodchip, God, because, because just the pursuit of money, God, a pursuit of keeping up with the Joneses, God, a pursuit of trying to fit into a culture that we were not made for, has just wrecked their souls. God, I pray for my own heart this morning, God. When I'm running after things that are not worthy to be called God in my temple and I'm tired, I feel depleted, God. I just pray, Jesus, may you come today and take up center stage in every life and every heart. I pray for people here today, God, that are just serving you out of a place of obligation and religion. May they find the deepest love of a God who comes to give himself for us, to redeem us, cleanse us, renew us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.